I'm sure you're familiar with this term, Barbara, the shovel-ready component, mm-hmm. um, which is, hey, we need to pick the low-hanging fruit. We need to get people back to work. There's this massive need already that we know about, to your point, let's just get on with it. But in doing so, you you are using the practices, the processes, the designs, and the techniques that you've used in the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optimistic Outlook. I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA. Today, we're going to focus in on something that we often hear, a term resilience. We're hearing it applied more and more. We're hearing about the need for resilient communities, resilient businesses, and now, yes, indeed, we need resilient infrastructure. So my guest today is someone who knows quite a bit about that. Seth Schultz is the Global Executive Director of the Resilience Shift. And we've had the chance to work together briefly throughout the entire pandemic, focusing on resilient leadership. We're going to be talking about the tough challenges we face, but I know that after you finish hearing what he has to say, you'll be more optimistic. Hey, Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, as we get started, I'd like to have our audience learn a little bit more about your organization. Tell us, tell us about your mission and how you got this interest in infrastructure. Yeah, so the resilient shift is really born out of the purpose to raise the awareness of the critical role of infrastructure in everybody's life, um, more or less, uh, and particularly how it needs to be more resilient and the interconnected nature of it. Uh, and more and more frequently, I think people are out of touch and, and forget about what infrastructure does, what it means to their individual lives and how important it is. So resilient shift is really born from that premise. And, and we work across a number of global geographies and stakeholders uh, across the spectrum of owners and operators, financers, designers, engineers, etc., to help uh, bring about a step change in how we design, operate, and maintain our critical infrastructure. That's exciting, but we, of course, you're using this term resilience. Yeah. Resilience, resiliency, we're hearing a lot about it these days. What does it mean to you? Yeah, for, well, for me, it's very personal. Um, I mean, when we talk about resilience, uh, I think I, I just spent a lot of time working after 9-11. And so for, for me, resilience means resilience in the community, resilience in infrastructure, resilience in emotional response um, and leadership. So it's, it's a, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff packed in there. Resilient shift, we take a very engineering and technical term oftentimes uh, as we look about that. But I think what's exciting to me and what's happened kind of around the world, uh, Barbara, with uh, COVID-19 is I think there's been a, a massive global awareness of what resilience actually means and, and how human, in fact, it is. So the idea of being able to bounce back, to endure, to, to even thrive at times of intense disruption, uh, you've been helping organizations through a lot of difficult times uh, in, in the time that your organization has been in, in existence. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we, we kind of uh, are the, or the logo of our organization. It's, it's, um, it's green. It's got kind of these way, this wavy kind of look to it. And really it was inspired by, by grass, by grass bending and blowing in the wind. It bends, it does not break. Um, very much kind of natural systems, nature-based solutions, but also a very fundamental and ecosystems driven kind of perspective on resilience and what that means. Interesting. So then bring us into the world of U.S. infrastructure. How would you rate the state of U.S. infrastructure today? Yeah, well, it's not great. 
Um, I don't know how many people are familiar. There's an organization called the American Society for Civil Engineers, ASCE. It's actually the largest institute of engineering practitioners in the world. Um, and they have something that they call the infrastructure report card. It's become a little bit famous. Uh, and they rank or rate infrastructure at the state level and then also kind of collectively at the national level. And on average, you might be surprised to hear this, the U.S. has a D in its infrastructure. Um, the reality is we haven't here in the U.S. context specifically really invested heavily in, in new infrastructure or in the maintenance of it for decades. Um, really since we've seen kind of the big, the, the New Deal, the Eisenhower administration, where we kind of created the transportation highway system, uh, we haven't really seen anything of that scale in quite some time. Um, and our infrastructure right now is overburdened from the use uh, of it and from the lack of proper operations and, and maintenance. Wait, Seth, a, a D in our infrastructure, what does it take? I've always been an A student. What does it take to get there? <laughs> yeah, it is a little shocking when you hear that. Um, so basically, I mean, it, it's we need to prioritize this. We need to invest way more, both in new infrastructure and the existing infrastructure that's literally crumbling. Um, it's not more complicated than that. But there is some heartening news. I mean, there, this is getting lots of attention. This is one of the most bipartisan um, kind of accepted um, issues. Uh, both sides think this needs to happen. We've been hovering close, you know, for, for years around making some really large infrastructure spending bills that just haven't uh, come through yet. Um, but there's also some other really exciting things happening too. Um, we've actually just uh, been collaborating. I mentioned the American Society for Civil Engineers before. Uh, we just set up a new international organization. Uh, it's called the International Coalition for Sustainable Infrastructure. And at its core is members, engineers, um, but also more broadly, the companies uh, like Siemens, as an example. And in fact, Siemens uh, is one of our early founding partners in setting up this coalition. And the entire focus is how do we educate, design, and implement resilient infrastructure and help politicians, policymakers, owners, operators all understand the need for this. And, and it's, it's really exciting. It happened in less than a year ago. We convened this uh, in L.A., uh, and we've already got a number of action tracks set up with which to really deliver specific outcomes, goals, and projects. So some really neat things that the engineers around the world are coming together to try to address this deficit, Barbara. Tell us about how the infrastructure has performed during COVID. I, we've obviously seen a tremendous change happening throughout the crisis. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating because in, in many ways, it's actually performed um, phenomenally well, um, meaning you didn't see some of these large-scale breakdowns. And again, I'm going to use this term, critical infrastructure. For us, what we think about as critical infrastructure is transport, energy, uh, digital communications, uh, and energy. And those four kind of sectors of infrastructure are so critical and, and, and intertwined that if one of those really goes down, you're going to see a domino effect and, and we'll see outages or stoppages of, of infrastructure services. And it, it handled it remarkably well. And I think one of the things that COVID-19 tested in many cases was the adoption that some organizations, uh, entities, cities, what have you, uh, how well they did in, in kind of modernizing themselves in the 21st century around digital communications, but how well that fiber optic system, how well that, that digital infrastructure held up really allowed us for the most part to continue switching immediately to working remotely, 
what we're doing now, video Skyping, learning remotely, and it really held up well. And the companies that and organizations that did really well had already invested heavily in that. So there was some real eye-opening examples. But again, I, for me, Barbara, I think was really interesting was the human component of this. And I, I think what COVID-19 is interesting is that it isn't, it isn't that some, something that you can necessarily see and touch. It was a, it was a kind of a, an invisible crisis, um, but one that manifest, manifested itself in many different ways simultaneously. But as a result, what that kind of provided or, or showed very clearly is how important humans are in physical infrastructure. As an example, you can't strip out or rip out physical infrastructure from a, a conversation around supply chains, as an example. You know it's really important. You know it plays a role. Um, the same thing that, that happened uh, as an example during COVID in the peak, the big crisis was the healthcare system and making sure we had enough resources where we needed and, and how. And that was a manufacturing supply chain issue, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But how those services interoperated together, how you do real-time solution uh, is what allowed us to avoid the worst. Um, and in that case, it did, it did hold up pretty well. Barbara, but I think it also really exemplified where more investment is needed and what type of assets and what type of, of training or um, mentorship that individuals need in how to deal with this. Oh, wow. This has been a huge focus for us at Siemens. We really feel strongly that our infrastructure is only as strong as the people who, who make it work. And, and indeed, we've been on the front line throughout the, throughout the crisis, uh, working with our other stakeholder customers in infrastructure. You know, we take a look often, if we aren't in a time of crisis, one of the things we're doing is scanning the horizon and saying, what kind of megatrons are at work here impacting our future? When you look at infrastructure, what do you see as the major megatrons driving change? Oh man, killer questions, Barbara. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot. It's um, on the infrastructure side for us, there's obviously the fourth industrial revolution, uh, i.e. Um, technology, um, and the advancements coming are fast and furious, but it's also really hard, particularly for public climate, uh, public sector clients uh, or entities like, like cities or regional government, the investments that you have to make and the kind of the bet you have to make on untested, unproved technology can be very challenging. On, on the other hand, new technology can allow you to kind of step change what you're doing and, and get to a solution really quick. So there's some kind of in juxtaposition, but I, I would say digital infrastructure is really key. Um, I, I believe that the 21st century kind of uh, efficiencies and operation um, and kind of increased betterment for broader society, that road is paved with data. Um, there's a massive issue going on about who has access to data, how you can be informed by data, artificial intelligence, but it's all born under, under infrastructure is moving that around. But how you, how you assess, that's a big one. Um, I'm also really worried about in terms of you're saying infrastructure, we need to do a lot in a lot of different ways, different analysis um, based on the infrastructure gap that we have and, and what's needed. I just read an estimate, G20 put it out at, at an estimate that around by 2040, we're going to need just short of $80 trillion of investment in infrastructure. It's a lot of money. Um, so where the money comes from and how it flows is a big challenge, particularly right now when really since the first time since post-construction of Europe, uh, post-World War II, there's going to be the, the largest simultaneous investment in infrastructure from countries around the world as it pertains to jump-starting the global economy. Um, and with that, with particular issues around healthcare as well. 
So when you spend that money, that it's not, you're not going to have as much money further down the road. So how and where you do that is, is tricky. And I think private sector um, infusion of capital and technology is going to be really key in how this all unravels. So for me, it's a, there's a lot of different components here. Uh, it's infrastructure in general we need in terms of prioritizing. It's more what the finance flows are. It's more making sure it's designed and resilience is built in. So it is as flexible and as useful in a future context as we need it to be. And what are you hearing from stakeholders? I'm, I, what, you're, what you're telling us is that because it was already, um, you know, frankly, in poor repair, we need to attend to it. And we're going to have to. We're going to be spending massive amounts of money do you think that the stakeholders who are responsible for these changes understand the opportunity that presents that they could actually be building for the future and perhaps addressing those megatrends at the same time? Yeah, a lot. I mean, simple answer is yes. I think in terms of awareness, that is very much top of mind. And I'm really happy that a lot of the organization, a lot of people that we're talking to are very much thinking about what is the future? What's, what's the new normal? Um, and that's a big deal, at least in the space of, of uh, emergency response um, and stimulus. A, a lot of that is to get back to normal, right? We, we were here and now we've slipped down to here. How do we adjust for that and get back? But it's not, you want to get back to where you were, not what's, what's a better place to, do, to get to moving forward. Um, and that's always the challenge. Um, and I, at least in terms of the awareness, the conversations we're having with organizations all over the world, the awareness is very high very high. And that's, that's a good thing. I do think they are struggling with, well, how do we do this? Um, and in juxtaposition to that is, as well, the stimulus bill, I'm sure you're familiar with this term, Barbara, the shovel ready component, mm-hmm. um, which is, Hey, we need to pick the low hanging fruit. We need to get people back to work. There's this massive need already that we know about to your point, let's just get on with it. But in doing so you you are using the practices, the processes, the designs, and the techniques that you've used in the past for shovel-ready purposes. You're, you are then negating the opportunity to rethink processes, to re- think more systematically and holistically, and to build in and design infrastructure that might be forward-looking. So that's the tug-of-war here. And as people are pushed by unemployment, um, by national governments, by politics and turning to having wins and jumpstarting the economy versus, hey, we need to think about how to do this differently. That's the problem. That's a lot of the questions that we are engaging in, Barbara, is what is that? How do we, how do, we do that and accommodate both of these kind of scenarios? Well, I've been seeing something really interesting happening, which is almost uh, in this moment of think about the mobility sector as ridership is low, uh, stakeholders are saying, this is the perfect time for me to actually engage in some infrastructure projects. Let me get some work underway, get it done when it'll be less disruptive to my my passengers. And um, so take me behind the scenes here. If you were advising an organization that is considering changes, what would you do to disrupt that pattern of thinking and get them to think about a more resilient future as they plan their next steps? Yeah, so um, maybe there's a couple of different examples we can talk through, but um, I think one really interesting one is just the use of of vehicles, of cars. Um, So when you're talking about transportation, there's lots of different, obviously, modes of transportation, high carbon, low carbon, public, private, et cetera. Um, And cities are an area as an example that have a lot of control in their local transportation. Um, 
So the idea, and again, really complex scenario that's playing out um, in cities across the world is very much the framing that you just mentioned. Um, and I think, I think it's fair to say for the last decade or so, there's been much more kind of um, enlightened thinking about urban planning, about getting streets back for pedestrians, for human beings, right? Most cities around the world have been designed for cars and single occupancy cars um, for that matter. And um, yes, there's public infrastructure in many cities, not as much um, as there should be, but there's this issue of, of cars and vehicles and parking in cities. So there's just been an opportunity to, to do congestion pricing or to remove um, combustion combustion-based engines out of the center of, of cities. Um, and the, the result is over 10 years, that's not been very popular. People don't want to give away their cars, don't want, don't want to be told they can't drive into cities. So what's happened over the last six months now, all of a sudden, is nobody was driving. Everybody's in lockdown. And during that period of time, people, individuals, started seeing the stars for the first time in the cities that they lived in. There was way less noise pollution. Um, air quality increased and got better. And all of a sudden people are like, well, this is, this is kind of amazing. Uh, I really like this. And you have, so you do have this moment where you've captured individuals, minds and hearts that there could be a different alternative here, which was really enlightening and really exciting. And you've seen some momentum around the world in terms of planners, city administrations, uh, companies trying to tackle this and use this as a window. But now all of a sudden we're getting ready to, to start reentering society. And what's happening now is it's still not quite safe. We don't have, you know, um, there isn't a vaccine developed yet. So when people are beginning to venture back into society, well, I can do that on a train packed in with a lot of people, or I can take my own car with the windows up. What am I going to do? And actually, sadly, now what we're seeing is automobile sales going through the roof um, and people choosing that as a safety factor, not because of what they want or not. So it's, it is a really hard time right now in terms of capturing people's imagination. And I do believe we have a window of opportunity around the world where everybody is much more open-minded than they have been and, and being much more accommodating in, in many respects to each other and to the work that people do in their respective ways, which is big in terms of policymaking and, and, and infrastructure. But yet you still do have these very practical issues of where's the money gonna come from? How is my safety being protected? Um, so to your, exactly to your point, and you, you kind of the question you prompted this, cities and and projects are around the world are hey we have an opportunity to maybe it's update our metro system you know to your point you can't stop that when there's high ridership now we can but now the question is well, that's a pretty scary bet to make right now to invest millions in updating our metro system when ridership is at a 50-year low and when is that ridership going to bounce back to recover that so th those are some of the and that's where I think we, we can come in and try to provide some insight to them about the opportunities, the investments, the payback, uh, and the process with which they may or may not want to under, undertake that. And also use this as a really, really good time to have a frank and honest conversation with your citizens about what the choices are that you're doing and, and what the behavior change component of all this is. It's probably a little bit more than you wanted me to, to bite off there, Barbara, but it was a, it's a great question. Oh, I think it's an important question. And I want to bring you back to that whole subject then of the people. How do you teach this kind of resilient thinking? You know, we've spent a lot of time working on that, Barbara. And um, what's interesting, we're talking about resilience and disruption. We've been disrupted at Resilient Shift. We spent all this time working on educating people or just to understand how important infrastructure was. If you don't value it, you don't... Um, pay for it. You don't vote for it, uh, which is one of the reasons I believe we have this 
infrastructure report card D scenario in the US because many of us, we call it the missing middle. We just not aware of how our water gets to us anymore or what it takes to get electricity uh, whenever you need it, wherever you need it. Um, so, but what we've seen via COVID and why I was saying we're disrupted is people get it now. People get this, this is vital. If I didn't have this, if I can't turn on a video and talk to my family member during isolation, it's the only interaction I have to see my grandchild, this is a big deal. So the fundamental idea of core critical infrastructure and what means to resilience as we saw play out all over the world, who, who thought that um, nurses uh, or orderlies were critical infrastructure? Who, who thought that somebody working at cash register uh, at a grocery store was a hero? It totally changed people's perceptions on what resilience meant personally. And I think on the infrastructure side, and as a result, we're now realizing we don't need to spend a lot of time on that anymore. People have been woke, so to speak, about that, but they wanna know what to do. Uh, they wanna know how to engage differently uh, and where we go from now. And that's the trick, that's transition period. You know, you've started focusing on major periods of crisis as an opportunity to zoom in and ask questions about, hey, what is the nature of resilience? Um, you did that during the water crisis in Cape Town. And, um, and recently you did that with, with COVID and asked me to participate in it. It was a fantastic experience. Would you share with our audience a quick overview of the project? Yeah, absolutely. So we, the, you mentioned this project in Cape Town, um, and that's where we just kind of got the genesis from. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, uh, around 2018, um, it was the first time really in modern history where a large city in the world was on the brink of running out of water. Um, and they called it day zero. It made headlines in newspapers all over the world. Um, and uh, this is Cape Town is in, in South Africa, right at the very bottom of South Africa. And they've been in a years long drought um, and things were getting really bad. Long story short, the city averted the major crisis of actually running out of water, but they were literally days away from it. Uh, and the powerful way that they did that, they tried everything as you might imagine, but it was actually through individual stakeholders, citizen behavior change response mechanisms that saved the day. Uh, it was such a profound kind of opportunity. We went in there and we just started talking to people. We talked to store owners, we talked to the mayor, we talked to policymakers, we talked to national government people. And it was so powerful, Barbara, to listen to these people about the realization that this crisis wasn't gonna go away, one, and two, it wasn't gonna change unless they individually did something. And what it meant, the, the realization of what it meant to their life to not have water. Uh, and it was profound. And we were very kind of charged up after doing this. We did this uh, video library uh, of over 90 interviews. And going back to your point about teaching and learning, what was really powerful is the process of learning and hearing from these people and their own experience was a powerful teaching tool. Because anybody else in the world who had a similar role or, uh, you know, position in life and their engagement could find themselves. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't somebody, an expert kind of lecturing you. You could find somebody who worked in the private sector or worked in, in the government, just like you do, and hear what they were dealing with. And it was a really profound mechanism to change their perspective. And then when COVID happened, to your point, um, we were so struck by this last project and this, this, this the, the, the period that we were entering into of uncertainty. Uncertainty is a big word for resilience, and particularly this kind of the confluence of climate change, 
uh, urbanization, globalization, the rate of change is so intense, it's really hard to accurately predict or manage. And then COVID comes along and just turns everything upside down. So we put together a project with which we are thrilled to have you participate where we engage with companies, uh, executive leaders who are managing companies with a global footprint, as well as chief resilience officers or individuals in city government that are also directly dealing with COVID. And we just did something very simple. We just talked to each of you every week for 30 minutes. And we asked you questions. We, what have you, what's happening? What are you dealing with? What have you learned from? What are you worried about? And we started sharing those ideas between the 12 participants. And we did this over a course of 16 weeks. And it was phenomenal because it, what we ended up seeing and you can tell me whether this is right or happened for you, but we ended up seeing individuals having to deal with the resilience in terms of leadership, in terms of governance structure, in terms of people, behavior change. But you were practicing resilience without even knowing it. And one week you were dealing with a shock and something you'd never seen before. You got together with your team, you started problem solving, you adapted. The second week it was an adaptation and you would kind of trying things out. And then the third week we talked to you there was five more things on your radar that had hit and the things from two weeks ago had, were just common practice, i.e. resilience. You had built them right in. So it was a really exciting project that we did, um, uh, learning from crisis. Um, and and we, we, we captured, try to capture and do justice to, the, to your learning, all of your learning processes. We put that together in a podcast. And we're actually, um, I'm excited to tell you, we're just going to be launching a report in two weeks time about it. I'll look forward to seeing that because my own experience, as you said, it was phenomenal. Just um, just knowing that uh, it was important that we were going to be talking every week, I needed to think about what it was we were doing. How could I explain this to somebody who was outside the corporation? And that helped me think more clearly. That alone helped me think more clearly in the midst of the crisis. So thank you for that. Oh, it was our pleasure. We loved having you. And, and your insights are terrific. I'm sure if, if, if I can plug it, this, the, the insights that we got from all the participants were, um, were amazing. Um, so yeah, I'd highly recommend everybody to go check it out. You can find it on our website. At, at, at resilientshift.org, yeah. correct? You got it. <laughs> Great. Um, one quick story that um, related to Cape Town, it just yes. you, you prompted a memory. I don't know if you're aware of this, but my colleagues in Siemens, both in Europe and South Africa, actually ordered, organized a water lift. They had passengers mm. in European airports check their bags and carry on double liter uh, water containers that could then be left with a Siemens employee in a Cape Town or Johannesburg airport so that we were literally moving water to the to where it was needed most. All of that was part of, I'll call it citizen engagement in resilient leadership. Oh, that's so cool, Barbara. I had not heard of that. That's really great. Hey, listen, Seth, I really uh, enjoy asking each of my guests the, a question about the things they focus on. And let's assume everything goes the way you want them to, the ideally, as, as you envision them for the future. What does that future look like? Oh, another fun question. Um, I think for me, uh, and I don't want this to sound cheesy, but I, I think the future for me is one where people are much more open-minded, open-minded and willing to collaborate. Um, I think the challenges that we have in front of us, uh, whether it's, you know, large economic crisis, uh, a uh, global pandemic, um, cultural or socioeconomic issues, um, 
we need more openness. Um, and I'm pretty convinced having looked and, and spent a lot of time in, in the research and, and data side of things, the, the, the work in front of us is, um, is massive. It's a huge amount of work that we need to do. Um, and really nothing like we've ever seen before, but I'm also really excited. I, I, I am a diehard optimist at heart. And I know right now it might be very scary uh, to be to be alive and and to be around with all of this, but it's also I think incredibly empowering. This generation right now, us we have a massive role in in casting the direction of our future, um, like maybe no other generation has. And, and for me, there's a powerful quote. It's uh, the the most I think successful people in the 21st century are those that are going to be able to unlearn what they already know and relearn. Um, so for me, that's, I think, what a future, a really prosperous future looks like, Barbara. I'll tell you, that is not cheesy in any way. That's inspiring. And I'm optimistic, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to working with you, Seth, as we move this forward. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Barbara. Thanks for having me and look forward to our continued collaboration. Please follow us on social media and on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in.